Today's scripture is from Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Before we jump into this text, will you join me in prayer? Father, as we come to your word, uh, first, just, I want to thank you for the gift that your word is to us. Even when it's hard and challenging, even when it confronts some things in my own heart and our hearts, Lord, it's apparent that you sit on the throne overall, and so your perspective on things in life is different than ours. And I pray this morning that even though pretty much all day, every day, we're being fed different lies and different versions of the truth, I pray that we could hear your truth. I pray that you would remove any stumbling blocks in the way in our own hearts, any distractions in our minds, and we might hear the word you have for us knowing that you love us, you want the best for us, and you want us to live lives marked by freedom. I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that even if we experience conviction, in the end, that conviction would help lead us to a place of greater freedom. So with that requ request, and we trust that your spirit, he's at work in our midst. It's in the name of your son that we pray. 
Amen. You know, when I was a kid, I had a number of hobbies, but by far, for many years, my favorite hobby was collecting baseball cards. Anyone else here collect baseball? Do people still collect baseball cards? We had this discussion. I don't know if that's still a thing. Uh, some of my, my, what fueled the hobby was my love for baseball. I really love baseball. But more than that, what fueled the hobby was the thrill of the hunt that comes with baseball cards. If you've ever collected baseball cards, you know every time you open the pack, you're opening up a world of possibility. Now, a lot of times the cards are really, really common. Common cards you kind of throw into a shoebox or cardboard box somewhere. Sometimes you'd find cards that were kind of rare and you had these little plastic sleeves you'd put them in. But then there were the cards that you would spend months, if not years, looking for what I called the white whale. You know, and my white whale of my elementary school years was the 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. I bought so many packs, and they were expensive. They were like $3 a pack. But that was my white whale. I chased it for years, and I finally got it. And when I got it, I don't know if you guys remember this. If you collected cards, you probably do. What you would do with a really expensive card is you would buy these two gigantic pieces of acrylic and they would be screwed together. You'd unscrew them and you'd put the card in between and then you'd screw it back down and so it would be very well protected. And when I got that card, that's the first thing I did. I spent $10 on a case, put the card in, and then I had a little lockbox in my room that I would keep it in. And I wouldn't show it to most people. There were thieves in my neighborhood, you know? <laughs> I would only bring it out for close friends. Why? Because it was a treasure. I mean, it was the greatest treasure, you know, of my elementary school life. And for you, I recognize not everyone was into baseball cards, but I guarantee every single one of us, we had different treasures that we collected as children. Maybe it was precious moments, dolls or matchbox cars or beanie boos or Barbies or pogs, if you guys remember those. Like, we, we all had something that we chased after because we... I'm convinced that we are born treasure hunters as people. We love it. Last week, that's why we celebrated Easter egg hunts with our children. It's, it's the hunt. It's the treasure that they're going after. This, this treasure desire we have, it's why we love shows like Pawn Stars, an antique road show, because this desire doesn't go away when we get older. I think it actually expands and it gets more expensive. You get older... Maybe it's books, maybe it is antique furniture, maybe it's cars, maybe it's houses. I don't know. What I do know is we all have this desire, and this desire, it fuels so much of our lives. This is why we love sports, the chase after the treasure of the title and the trophy. This is why we love games. And at so many games, what are you chasing after? The loot, the promise of loot. I'll never forget a few years ago when Pokemon Go was uh, at its peak. I pulled into the parking lot and there were people wandering around in our parking lot like zombies. <laughs> and I came in and I asked Pastor Brian, hey, what's going on? And he was like, well, allegedly there's a very rare Pokemon that's creeping around our property. <laughs> and so some of these people have been here a few hours waiting to catch it. It's that treasure. This treasure desire fuels our economy. I visited the mall recently. I haven't been there in a long time. And I notice every store you walk by, there's windows. And then in the display are various treasures that you can purchase. That's what they are. 
my wife and I were talking about this. We were talking about Pinterest. When you think about it, all Pinterest is, is it's, it's an endless array of virtual treasures that we can gaze upon. And Pinterest right now is valued at about $10 billion. It's crazy to think about. This treasure desire is so powerful. And here in the second half of Matthew 6, Jesus, he recognizes, he knows how powerful this desire is. And so he wants to teach on it. He wants to help us know what to do with this desire. And the first thing I want you to see before we get into all the intricacies of the text is that nowhere does Jesus condemn the desire for treasure. Jesus doesn't say, don't don't lay up treasures on earth because desiring treasure is selfish and self-centered and you really should put that desire to death. That's not Christianity. It's actually Buddhism. Buddhism teaches that the key to life is you follow the eightfold path to reach a place where you don't desire anymore, which is called nirvana. Nirvana literally means to quench or to blow out, to just get rid of desire. Jesus knows nothing of that teaching. Jesus, he, he doesn't want to diminish or quench our desire. I would argue in this text, he actually wants to expand our desire. He wants to fuel it, but he also wants to refine it and redirect it. He doesn't want us to put it to death. He wants to expand it, but also refine and redirect it. And I would say that the essence of all of these verses is found in verses 19 and 20 at the very beginning, when Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, what Jesus is saying, when he says lay up treasures, he's, he's saying you're going to give the best of who you are to something in life. So don't give the best of who you are to the accumulation of things on this earth. Instead, give the best of who you are to accumulate treasures with God that God promises. It's simple, straightforward. But I would argue this is one of the most challenging aspects of Jesus' teaching for us to live out, especially us, especially in this day. I mean, you have to remember, Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago to poor peasant fishermen and farmers, right? And I don't know what they had. I don't know what they would spend their money on beyond the basics, but I'm guessing it was probably pretty boring stuff, like another clay pot, you know, an extra pair of sandals. I don't know. They had boring stuff. We, on the other hand, have really cool stuff. Right? Like what we can spend our money on. It's amazing. I was just talking to someone. There's this thing you can buy that you take a paper airplane and it turns it into like a little drone. It makes the paper airplane fly. It's amazing that someone figured out how to make that work. There's so many things that we can buy that are utterly amazing. And not only that, we can buy it and have it delivered to our door within 48 hours. And so this, while this was certainly applied back then, how much more does it apply to us? I mean, we, we live in a society that celebrates material excess and makes celebrities of those who live in, in extravagance, a society that believes and lives and teaches that the accrual of cash 
and the accumulation of stuff, that's the goal of life. And we have so much stuff, we don't even know what to do with it. We have so much stuff that we actually have to buy more stuff, namely a book or a documentary series, to help us learn how to get rid of our stuff. Right? I have too much stuff, I don't know what to do. Buy more stuff that'll teach you how to get rid of all of the stuff you have. You know, the, the great philosopher Tyler Durden and the book Fight Club, he once said the things that you own, they end up owning you. I think we feel this a lot. You know, Wendell Berry said something along the lines of, beware of accumulating so much stuff that you celebrate when your house catches on fire because you don't know how to get rid of it and it solves your problems. And so all of that, because this is the, the water that we swim in, when we come to Jesus' teachings, where he's like, don't, don't chase those things. Don't even, don't even think about those things. It's going to sound strange, foreign, maybe even absurd. I'm convinced that Jesus' teachings about money are some of the hardest and most countercultural, if not the hardest and most countercultural things that he taught for us to receive. You know, I learned early on as a pastor that people don't like to hear sermons about money. People made that really, really clear. And some of that's legitimate. They went to churches where pastors would browbeat people into giving, or they, you know, we've all seen the stories of great excess where pastors would line their pockets off the giving of people. And so some of it's legitimate. But I remember we planted a church filled with a whole bunch of people who didn't really go to church growing up. Six months in, whatever text we were in, I was preaching. I think it was the Sermon on the Mount, actually. And I preached a sermon on money. And I had people come up to me and say, you know, this is what the church always does. The church only ever talks about money. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You've never been to a church besides ours. And we've had six months of sermons, and this is the first one. But there's a resistance. And I think the bigger reason we don't like sermons about money, I don't think we like what Jesus has to say about the matter. Not, maybe we like it, but we're scared by it. Because it is so... Challenging, so countercultural, so subversive. It scares us. And yet, if you're willing to listen to what Jesus has to say here, you're going to find, number one, that not only are his arguments sound, they make sense. More than that, you're going to find that what he teaches here is incredibly liberating. Countercultural and challenging, but liberating. So we're going to look at this, and we're kind of just going to go through it in order. But two handholds, two points if you want them. The first point, we're going to spend some time talking about the problems that Jesus exposes with earthly treasures. What's the real problem with earthly treasures? And then we're going to look at some promises that Jesus gave that set us free. It's pretty simple, very challenging, the problems. I'm going to list for you five I think you could go seven, eight, or nine different problems Jesus exposes with earthly treasures, but I want to highlight five. Number one, first thing Jesus says, earthly treasures are a bad investment. They're a bad investment. Verse nine, or 19, sorry, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is being very logical here. He's saying don't give the best of who you are 
accumulating stuff, accumulating earthly treasures, because it's a bad investment. It's a bad use of your time. You know, say, this will require imagination for some of you, for some of you wouldn't, but say you had $10,000, and someone asked you to, came to you and said, hey, are you willing to invest $10,000 into my company? You'd ask some questions before you said yes, wouldn't you? What's your company? Tell me what you're making. Eventually, you'd get to the, the question, what return could I expect on my $10,000? And if they responded by laughing, oh, you're not getting a return. The whole company's going to tank in the next couple of weeks. You probably wouldn't invest. Well, Jesus, he's saying, listen, this world, everything in it, as we know it, it's all passing away. From Jesus' perspective, which is the perspective of eternity, there are no treasures on earth that are a worthwhile investment because everything on earth as we know it, it's passing away. Every material thing we acquire, every dollar that we have, Jesus is trying to help us see, will one day be taken from us. He says, moths will eat your clothes and your books, rust will eat your cars. If you have enough stuff, thieves will break in and steal what's left. And if there's anything beyond that, the government will take a huge chunk out of it. He's saying it's a bad investment. And when you think about it, it's so true. It should be obvious to us. Everything that we own, everything that we buy, will one day end up in the dirt. I call this the landfill principle. It might be a year from now. It might be 10 years from now. It might be 100 years from now. But everything that we acquire on this earth will either be burned up in a fire or it will end up in the dirt. It's all fleeting and perishable. And Jesus is saying, don't give your life in pursuit of things that end up in the dirt. Remember, you live forever. So give your life to something that matters for eternity. It was interesting when I, were, I was writing the sermon, I was talking with my wife about it. And she's like, that's good. She's like, whatever happened to that 1989 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card? And I was like, I don't know. I think it's in a box in my mom's basement. I'm kind of hoping it is. I don't even know if it's worth anything anymore. She's like, that's ironic. It's kind of everything Jesus is teaching, isn't it? Good point. Earthly treasures are a bad investment because they're temporary and they're fleeting. But just because they're going to end up in the dirt, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact of how powerful they can be and the power they can exert over us. And that's the second thing Jesus says. Earthly treasures hijack our hearts. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And when Jesus speaks about our hearts, he's not just speaking about our emotions. He's talking about the very center of who we are, like our will, the essence of who we are. And Jesus, he knows that what we treasure exerts crazy influence on the center of our being. Whatever we decide to treasure and pursue, it's going to have a profound and powerful effect on us. And I heard someone put it like this, what you prize, you pursue, and what you pursue ends up possessing you. What you prize, you pursue, you chase after, And what you chase after, it ends up possessing you and controlling you. This is why buying a 
new car or a used car or a new house or, or any major purchase, people will say it was a very emotionally taxing experience. It's an emotional time because it's, it's hitting something at the very center of your being. This is why I don't think I'm the only one. When there's something I really want, it's hard to think about other things until I acquire that. Kind of dominates your thoughts. This is why people do really, really stupid things for money. Things that they know are dumb. That's why people risk their reputations, their jobs, their marriages, their friendships, their relationship with their kids for an extra 10 grand or 50 grand or 100 grand. We see it all the time. And the reason they do it is because their hearts have been hijacked. Earthly treasures hijack our hearts, and then this leads to the third one. They cloud our vision. Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a challenging couple of verses. Um, There's some part of what, there's some poetry here in the original language that gets a little lost for us in translation. But the easiest way I could explain this is that in the scriptures, one's eyes and one's heart are often used interchangeably. So to fix your heart on something is the same thing to fix your eyes on something. And what Jesus is saying here is when you set your heart and you fix your eyes on earthly treasures, you don't see things clearly. When you set your eyes on pursuing material things, that's supreme. It distorts your vision and how you see the world and how you see other people. People stop being image bearers, created in the image of God, of infinite worth and value, and instead people become vehicles or obstacles. Vehicles to help you achieve your treasure or obstacles that are standing in the way of your treasure. One of the things that's hard for us to see is when when Jesus talks about if your eye is bad, the bad eye elsewhere in Scripture, that phrase is translated as evil eye or greedy eye or stingy eye. This kind of makes sense when you think about it. When we get locked in the tractor beam of accumulating stuff and our vision gets distorted and then we start to treasure it above all, of course we're going to be protective of it. You protect what you treasure. And so what happens is you become really, really stingy with your money because it's the most important thing in the world to you and you don't want to give any of it away because there's nothing more valuable to it than you. And so you'll see people in need And instead of seeing them as being infinitely more valuable than than money, you just see them as a threat. This is why many affluent, seemingly or or self-proclaimed Christians in America, they claim to love Jesus, but they don't love the poor at all because the poor to them are a threat to their real treasure. Their vision's been distorted. Like a child, nobody touches my stuff. So they're a bad investment. They hijack our hearts. They cloud our vision. The fourth thing Jesus says is that they end up mastering us. In verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
And I wish I had more time to unpack this, but Jesus is revealing something that that we learn is true, that our, our hearts can only have one, one dominating love. Our lives can only have one priority, one thing that rises above all. And Jesus says the real, the competition most of the time for most people, what's going to be your number one priority? Is it going to be God or is it going to be money? And he's saying it's got to be one or the other. He's not saying you're not allowed to serve God and money. He's saying it's impossible. You cannot. There are things that if money is your number one priority, there are things that you will say yes to that if God were your number one priority, you would have to say no to. Money is your number one priority. There are things that you will say no to. Whereas if God was your number one priority, you would say yes to them. What we treasure can master us. And so if you're following with me, Jesus, he's making an argument, and I think it's actually building on itself. He's saying, number one, they don't last. Number two, they hijack your hearts. Number three, they, they distort your vision. Number four, they master you. And then lastly, they suffocate you with anxiety. We see this in verse 25. And at first it seems like this shift. Jesus goes from talking about money to talking about worry and anxiety. But in verse 25, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And anytime there's a therefore in the scriptures, you have to ask, what is, what is it there for? What's it connecting? And this is really pretty profound on Jesus' part. See, one of the reasons I think we want to accumulate a lot of stuff and an ever-expanding savings account is because we don't want to have to worry about the future. We think, if I have enough stuff, then I will be safe and I will be secure. And Jesus is revealing this deep irony that as we try to cover every possible contingency that life may throw our way with an abundance of possessions, with more money, He's saying your anxiety, it won't lessen, it'll actually increase. The more you have, the more anxious you'll become. Why? Because the more you're putting your hope in things that are going to end up in the dirt. And we can't really argue with him on this point. We are the most affluent society in the history of the world, and it's not even close. If... if <laughs> People from 300 years ago came and lived among us today with all of the stuff they had. They would be tempted to worship us as gods with what we can do with our stuff. We're so affluent. We have more than anyone has ever had. And yet we are also by far the most anxious people in the history of the world. The two are connected. When we build our lives around things that we all know at some level are going to end up in the dirt, we get really anxious. And this word, anxious and worry, both of these words, in the original language, they both are connected to the idea of choking or suffocating you. That treasures have this power to like wrap their hands around your neck or put their foot on your chest. And that's the way a lot of people feel when it comes to money. They feel choked all the time. They feel like they're suffocating. They feel stuck. Some of you are in jobs that you hate 
But to leave that job and get another job would require you to take a 10 or 15 or 20% pay cut, and you can't envision doing that. Even though you might have done it for decades before, lived on less, you kind of hit this place and you're accustomed to certain treasures. And so you feel stuck and you hate your job, you're miserable, you feel like you're suffocating, you're overwhelmed with anxiety, but you just keep going. I want to share a really tragic story with you. I'm going to tell you up front, it's a really, really sad story. I had a friend of mine years ago. He was really a mentor. Um, he was a believer. He was really wealthy, really generous. And a few years before I met him, he and his wife, they actually lost their eight-year-old son to cancer. It was like a long, drawn-out battle. It took three years, and he died at the age of eight, which has to be the worst thing that any parent could ever go through is bearing your own child. Well, their marriage persevered against the odds. They stayed together. And his company actually started growing and taking off. And then at one point, he was doing really well. I mean, they had a really nice house, really nice cars. He was really generous. Well, at one point, his right-hand man at his company uh, went behind his back and basically stole his company out from underneath him. And in a matter of a few months, this guy lost almost everything that he had. He was going to lose his home, he was going to lose his car, he was going to lose everything. And he ended up taking his own life. And I went to his funeral, and he was a good man. Like, he was a very good man. Very grateful for who he was in my life. But when you think about that, he went through the worst thing that life could throw at you, losing a child, and he made it. But when the thought of losing all the riches came, that was when he said, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't say that to criticize him. I say that to show the power money has to master us and suffocate us and enslave us. And Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, I don't want you to live that way. And I think there's a whole lot of us in this room that feel that too. You know, we're no longer living in the 1980s, watching Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I don't think most of us are sitting around dreaming about riding around in a limousine, drinking champagne and eating caviar. That was a dream in America for a while. I think enough of us have seen where that leads, and we don't like those people that we don't want that, but we still feel trapped. Like, how do we get out of this, this rut? this way of being in the world. And I can tell you, just harping on the negative won't get you there. But I can also tell you that Jesus, he doesn't just harp on the negative here. He lays out all these reasons why earthly treasures are a bad investment. And then he gives us some promises. Because Jesus' goal when he teaches about money, it's not to make you feel bad. He might want to convict you, but he always convicts because he wants to lead you into a path of freedom and healing and flourishing. And so Jesus, he gives all these warnings, and I can't help but think, from his perspective, he's looking at people, and he's like, y'all, it's not the way to live. Think about it. It doesn't make sense. Look at what it's doing to you. Look at what it's doing to your world. I have a better way. And Jesus, he lays out the better way by first laying out a number of promises. Verse 26, Jesus says, quit 
basically quit looking at your money and your stuff and worrying about it. And he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, how does Jesus lead us out of the trap of loving money and chasing earthly treasures? By telling us about how wonderful our Father is. Saying it doesn't make sense, like you're chasing and you're giving your life to. You have a father who owns everything. And he loves you. And he's promised to take care of you. And if you ever doubt it, just look at the world. Like, consider the flowers. He takes care of them. You're worth more than flowers. Look at the birds. He takes care of them. I love in Luke, Jesus says, For you are worth more than many birds. I'm always like, how many? You know, <laughs> like one eagle, two owls. Like what? But the point stands. He's saying like God takes care of these lesser things in his creation and you can watch him do it. How much more is he going to take care of you? See, what Jesus is trying to help us see is like you're worrying about things you don't need to be worrying about. You're obsessing over things you don't need to be obsessing about because your heavenly father knows your needs before you do, and he'll meet them. And we can look at this world and we can see that our God is not a God of scarcity. He's a God of abundance. Learn this every year in springtime, right? Every year in springtime where things just burst to life. Some things we don't necessarily want bursting to life in our yards. God's a God of abundance. There's this... I've never noticed this phrase before this week, but in verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore, don't be anxious, because your, your Father cares about you. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And this is the phrase. He says, For the Gentiles seek after these things. But your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Gentiles here means pagans, means those who don't know God, those who don't believe in God, those who don't have God as their Father. And so he's looking at his disciples, and he's saying, Yeah, they're all stressed out. Because they don't know God. You do. So don't, don't be like them. That's functional unbelief. Trust in the goodness of your dad. I think, honestly, our pursuit of earthly treasures and our anxiety about it, it's got to be so insulting to God. You know, my kids are at that point where they want to know how much everything costs these days. Anyone else's kids been there? You know, they're... It's like, how much was that, Dad? And for some reason, my kids think the bigger something is, that automatically that means more expensive it is. So if we go to Lowe's and see very big things and they find out it's not expensive, they're like, let's buy it all, you know? <laughs> but then they start asking other questions. How much do you have in savings? Imagine if my kids were to say, you know, start taking some of the, the toys I bought them or, or things that I've given them and like sneaking over to the neighbor's house when they're doing a garage sale and started selling it. Why? So, well, I'm trying to save up in case, you know, dad mismanages the funds and we find ourselves in trouble. 
for like out trying to work side jobs without me knowing, it'd be so insulting to me. Like I'm your dad. Have I ever not provided for you? Have you ever not had food on the table? Have you ever not had more than you need? And if I'm evil and flawed and sinful and broken and a very imperfect dad, how much more will our Heavenly Father meet our needs? See, Jesus is saying, instead of living a life marked by the relentless accumulation of things, I want you to instead live a life of ruthless trust and the goodness of God, your Father. And the way you do this, Jesus says in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things, they will be added to you. It's really kind of simple. In this seeking first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, this is, it's filled with a lot of promises. One promise is that all these things will be added to you, which means as you fix your eyes on God's kingdom and his righteousness, God will take care of you. But even more, then you'll be laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. And I don't know exactly what those treasures are. Jesus gives us some idea of like houses or, or positions. I think we're all going to be happy in heaven with the Lord. I know we will. Some will be extra happy, you know. Like some will be rewarded. That's clear teaching. We don't know exactly what those rewards are, but we do know that they're never going to rust or fade or be stolen from us. We do know that they will purify our hearts and clarify our vision. We do know that they will lead us to worship and that they will quell any anxiety we have. And so how do we get them? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What Jesus is doing here, I think, is he's calling us back to the Lord's Prayer. I actually think this whole section is Jesus expounding on the middle of the Lord's Prayer when he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And so when we pray, God, your kingdom come, what we're praying is, God, we know that you've promised to rid this earth of evil, sin, brokenness, death, and tears. And so we want to see that kingdom come. We know you've promised to restore humanity's relationship with you. And so we want to see people be reconciled to you. Seeking first the kingdom is being captivated by that vision of what God's going to do. And then seeking to live our lives in light of it. And then seeking his righteousness. That's seeking to live a life that honors God and, and it's connected to the former. And, and lives according to what God's promised to do in this world. Jesus is saying, give the very best of who you are to that. And God will take care of every other need. And you'll have treasures laid up in heaven. You know, there are so many questions people have around Jesus' teachings about money. What can I buy? What should I give? How much should I give? And I'll just tell you, there's not a lot of clear answers. I think we really want clear answers, but there's a whole lot of gray. But I can tell you that the one clear answer we are given is Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let that be your vision and your passion. Let that be the overriding thing in your life. And then 
God will meet your other needs, and then you can make decisions in light of that. And as some of you are wrestling, should I buy this thing or not? Is it greedy or is it not? Well, are you seeking first his kingdom? With your thoughts, your affections, and your money. When you seek the kingdom, I, I think it brings such clarity to the rest of your life. But I say all this because I don't want you to think that seeking first the kingdom means that you like live this ascetic life where you never buy clothes and you kind of hate yourself and you hate everything on this earth. I don't think that's the case. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that God richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. So seeking first the kingdom doesn't mean en not enjoying things on earth. It just means enjoying them in perspective. I came across this quote this week. It was helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. One pastor said, the kingdom of God doesn't have to compete with our work, our hobbies, relationships, and the other important aspects of life. In fact, when rightly understood, the kingdom will enhance every aspect of life, infusing them with fresh meaning and significance. As C.S. Lewis said, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but they're increased. What matters most gives perspective to anything that matters at all. And Jesus spent so much time talking about the kingdom of God because it is not just another thing his disciples needed to learn. The kingdom of God was the framework for everything they needed to learn. Seek first the kingdom is a call to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's in light of that that we can respond and make decisions. But there are a few invitations I want to put before you as we come to the Lord's table. We're reminded that God... He met our greatest need by offering a son for our sins. And so coming to the Lord's table, it's an invitation to grow in trust. Trusting that God will provide. And actually maybe even putting ourselves out there and risking a little bit so that we're forced to trust. Then on top of that, as we remember the body of Christ that was broken and his blood that was shed, Remember that he meets our every need. And that, that with that, we're prone to sin. And we can be prone to be greedy. And a great way to, to be set free from our materialism is to actively pursue a life of simplicity, a simpler life. We just sang the song, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One of the ways we grow in not wanting is we seek to simplify. And so maybe that's you're getting rid of things. Maybe you have an excess and you need to give some to people who could really benefit from it. Or maybe it's just buying less. In our house, I make it a, a point every season at least to try to go five or six days without spending any money. It's hard, but it's not impossible. It's actually a really, really good lesson to go through. The reason you do all of that is so that you can go and live in generosity, remembering the generosity of God towards us. So if you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to come and to eat and to drink. Be reminded that God's love for you is based upon Jesus' death and resurrection in your place. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave himself for you. Let me pray.